I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Alex Rodriguez. Alex is co-founder and CEO of Embark. If you aren't familiar with Embark, they're an autonomous vehicle company building software for carriers to enable autonomous trucks within their fleets. Talking about automating long-haul trucking, essentially. And I think this is, this is interesting and worth highlighting. So the, the mission that they state is to build a world in which consumers pay less for the things they need, drivers stay close to the homes they cherish, and roads are safer for the people we love. I kind of enjoy that from from my perspective. So I'm often thinking about you know the the benefits of self-driving, what they are, what they're how they're going to uh, materialize. And I think it's interesting the things that they choose to, to focus here on the cost perspective, the driver experience, as well as the the uh, other drivers on the road, the the benefit there that of of safety on on the road. So ambitious. There's a long and I think we as we talk about here, it's a challenging problem to solve. Long way to go before we get there, but. Uh, yeah, cool focus. Re- really fun discussion with Alex. Interesting guy. So he, as of the, the SPAC merger they had fairly recently, became the youngest CEO of a publicly traded company. And as you t- talk about kind of his experience through the year, so he started building robot- robots at age 11. R- really, really interesting career. All the stuff that he's automated through the years and robotics competitions before he eventually um, co-founded Embark and went through Y Combinator and such. So I'll leave it there for now. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex Rodriguez. Today I'm joined by Alex Rodriguez. Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this uh, should be a fun discussion. So automated commercial driving, not, not the first time I've, I've covered this in the, in the podcast. I think it's a super interesting topic, one that I'm personally passionate about and excited about. But uh, I think the way Embark is, uh, is approaching it is it's interesting, your backstory and how you uh, built the company, all all interesting. I'm excited to, to dive in. So with that being said, would you mind kind of setting the stage and I don't know, that quick story kind of why why did you start Embark? How did you come across this? Why is this the problem you, you chose to tackle? Sure, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I'll start with like my introduction, which flows into this um, pretty well. So uh, 
my background, grew up in Canada, uh, started building robots when I was 11, uh, did 15 years of competitive robotics. Uh, so I don't know how well you know first, but that was kind of very uh, foundational for me. Um, won a high school robotics world championship when I was in middle school, uh, and then went to the University of Waterloo and built the first self-driving vehicle in Canada, which was a little golf cart um, that we ran on campus. And so it's so sort of a, a slightly long-winded way of saying um, I've been been building robots most of my life. Um, have had the pleasure of getting to work with some incredibly talented um, robotics engineers uh, over the years, and I think interestingly, I've had the experience of taking at this point probably close to a dozen platforms from pencil sketch to real physical robot uh, out operating in some kind of environment. Some of those were self-driving vehicles. Some of those were competition robots. Um, and I think that gave me a very unique perspective um, when we started Embark. So the way that the way that sort of flows into Embark is we build the first self-driving vehicle to run on public roads in Canada. It's this golf cart. Um, we use that to apply to uh, a fairly well-known incubator down in San Francisco known as Y Combinator. Um, mm -hmm. and so this is uh, the number one startup incubator in the world. Um, and we get down into Y Combinator uh, on the thesis that we're going to take this technology and put it to use in a way that's going to make people's lives a lot better. Um, and I think at the beginning, we're a little bit vague as to what does that mean? Um, and to put sort of the context around timing. So we built the golf cart in 2015 uh, and then we got into Y Combinator winter of 2016. Uh, and so this is like at a point in time where the only real self-driving efforts were Google self-driving, which is still called Google self-driving at the time, uh, Cruise, which had not yet been acquired. So it was like an independent company that were like $90 million valuation, uh, Uber, and that's pretty much it. Um, and so there were basically three companies working on self-driving cars and nobody working on anything else. Um, and uh, one of the first things that Embark uh, really realized was um, cars are going to be really hard. I think at the time there was a ton of hype around cars. Um, I felt having at that point built, you know, close to a dozen platforms and uh, having the experience of not just what is this looking in research, but what happens when you try and take it out and put it on the road um, is that it gets exponentially harder when you try and make it real, when you try and put it, um, you know, build it, make it reliable, make it effective and not just write a paper. Um, and so we felt that uh, we really needed to find a place where we could focus on a subset of the problem and not try and do everything all at once. Um, and so that really inspired us to build Embark. And so I'm sure we'll get through all the details, so I won't give like the super long version, but um, the idea here is Embark builds self-driving semi-trucks, specifically software for self-driving semi-trucks. Um, we have a fleet of over 18 trucks today uh, we, that run in self-driving mode, moving freight for some of the biggest carriers in the nation, people like DHL, um, AB InBev. Uh, and we do that uh, with the idea that we're in the long-term going to take that software and license it uh, directly to big carriers uh, who will then own and operate the trucks. Um, and so today as Embark is you know, between three and 400 people, uh, we have a fleet of trucks out there moving freight. There's still safety drivers in the trucks today, um, but in, in short order, uh, we expect to sort of make those final pieces to start scaling it up and running it uh, fully driverless. Awesome, yeah. Well, appreciate appreciate the background, like you mentioned. Cool, cool, cool story. I think uh, cool, cool prod project. Uh, 
not a project to this a company and, and problem you're, you're facing. Uh, I guess one quick side note, you mentioned first robotics. So actually I, I hadn't had as much uh, implementation, but actually now the company uh, Edison Manufacturing. So we have in Port Huron, Michigan, we have a, a local area where we got a bunch of local first robotics teams in the back that have, there's a competing uh, competition area, which is, which is kind of cool. So I've been diving into that a bit more and that's a, that's a cool organization. I know you have uh what is a decade or uh, 12 years plus you were working in there and world championship and such. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. That's really cool to hear. Um, I think first is amazing. I, uh, at the beginning of this year, um, I started a, a grant fund out of sort of my own money to sponsor, uh, robotics education. And we sponsored a bunch of first teams. Um, so something oh. like super passionate about, uh, and, uh, I think, you know, embark wouldn't exist without first. So, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm an advocate. That's awesome. And then, so one of the, uh, I don't know, several of the things you said there have come up. So I, I started this podcast. I, I had a belief personally that, you know, safe, sustainable technology was something I care about. And as I asked myself more questions and I figured, okay, what, what does that actually mean? Like what does safe, sustainable mobility actually mean? And it's been this long journey. And so now I, I define it as what I care about a safe, sustainable, effective and accessible mobility. And some of the main themes that have come out as one technology development is a small piece of the problem implementation is <laughs> is really where the the meat of this is two commercial vehicles for both electrification and certainly automation in refined use cases and areas where we're able to bring in the boundary conditions and constrain the problem are by far the best places where we should be putting this technology to actually implement it sometime in the short form and then also just just this I know all, all these parallels between robotics and this, uh, I don't know, technically it's, it's the same problem essentially. And I, you, you know this much better than me. So I'd be curious your, your opinion, but like the, the bones of the problem, you're trying to move someone automate, you need to make sense. You need to see the world. You need to make sense of the world. You need to make decisions about what you're going to do. And then you need to somehow put that into practice. And like, that looks very different, but like how, how can you describe how similar or different was that across the 12, platforms or a dozen platforms that you've automated in your, over your life so far? Yeah. I'll, I'll out myself maybe a little bit as like a, a real, like, you know, I read Isaac Asimov when I was young robotics nerd type here. Um, but uh, I think um, one of the reasons that self-driving is so interesting is because a lot of the foundational technologies and skills across robotics are actually common. And I think robotics is in this interesting spot today where um, it has incredible potential, but really you only see robots in cages. Um, so you see robots in factories, right? You see all sorts of robotic-esque machines. Like you'd argue that even the, you know, a dishwasher or a, uh, right, that they're like all, all sorts of like, or a printer are like robots of a, of a type. Hmm. Well, they're always sort of in a cage in one sense or another. Um, and then the next big step in robotics is to take the robots out of cages, to put them out into the real world and allow them to interact with the environment. And that means being able to move around. So it means being able to perceive the world, um, being able to navigate, being able to do motion planning. Um, and those are, and then obviously all of the like controls, actuation, physical elements of that. Um, and I actually think that uh, self-driving, even though it's going to be a multi-trillion dollar uh, opportunity, is really just the tip of the iceberg. 
there's a heck of a lot more that you can do. Um, and they all use the same common sort of core technologies, although each one is very different and of course needs to be built from scratch um, to, to meet the particular need. Um, so what I would say is, is interesting here is one, it's all common technologies. Two, uh, I think self-driving is interesting because it's the first, it's a, it's this huge market, which justifies the initial effort to stand up some of these skill sets, right? Everyone says, oh, it's so easy to build a software business today. Well, it is today because over the last 20 years, like AWS was created. But when the when they were building the first software businesses, there was no AWS, there were no browsers. Like you had to, you know, run a server out of your basement with parts that you ordered from like uh, random places that were not reliable. There was no standard way to deliver stuff to people on the other side. And robotics is kind of in that space today. And so we're finding that first place that robots can move out of a cage into the real world, make a huge impact. Um, and so I think what's interesting is that uh, stuff like com competition robotics is actually the place that this has been refined the most in a non-commercial context. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to any research institution today and you go to their robotics department, you will find first robotics parts. That is where the best parts are. It is where the most experience is um, because there isn't a commercial use case today. And I think self-driving is, is uh, really sort of standing at the precipice of becoming that place where a lot of these technologies um, are ultimately turned into something that's good enough to, to impact everyday people's lives. Can you speak to how, how you settled in, on the, this use case that you're going after? So, so commercial logistics, yeah, you mentioned robotics on a potential. There's this whole scope, but even if you look at self-driving, I mean, how many how many different companies are tackling different aspects of self-driving? You mentioned it was cars almost exclusively at the time. Like, how did you guys originally settle on this use case? And then how has that evolved? And how has your thinking evolved over the last six years or whatever it has been? Yeah. Uh, so it, it took us a little while to identify trucks. But I'll, I'll say it up front. I don't think um, it wasn't like we had a flash of insight one day. We really spent... Um, close to a year uh, after we started building self-driving platforms, um, sort of tinkering with different ways of bringing it to market um, before we ultimately settled on trucks. And let me explain a little bit about how uh, Embark is bringing this technology to market in trucking, because I do think that matters. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that the, the technology actually gets used is we develop software uh, and we've developed a uh, set of modules that can be integrated on top of existing truck platforms to give them the perception and computation that's required. Um, and so we call that Embark Universal Interface. And then we work with big carriers who buy a truck, put the modules on it, and then operate that truck themselves. And then what happens is we have what's called transfer points. And so you end up taking a big long route, like for example, LA to Dallas, and you break it up into three parts. So you have a, a person in a regular truck doing local driving for the first and last mile inside the cities. Then they're taking it to a transfer point, uh, which basically just like a parking lot where they drop the trailer. And the driverless truck is picking up the trailer at that parking lot and then driving down the highway and dropping it off at the edge of the other city. And so there's a few key insights there, right? One is that, you know, from a technical perspective, we've really narrowed in on just 
driving on highways. Mm -hmm. um, we do a little bit of surface streets to get to and from those parking lots. But you can kind of think of, we've very intentionally excluded city centers. We don't drive in downtown. Um, and that's a big, that's like a big piece from a technical perspective. And then from a business perspective, um, we've tried to be a software company as much as possible, right? We are not owning and operating the trucks. That's it, that's the carrier partners we have, which includes like five of the top 25 US carriers um, who work with us. Uh, we're not building huge manufacturing facilities, right? We're doing individual modules that can go on top of existing platforms. Um, and so there's a lot of work both on the business and the like both commercially and engineering to narrow in on what's the simplest way that you can really take this set of capabilities and bring it to market. Um, and so I think that really matters. Uh, like you could do self-driving trucks, the, quote unquote, the hard way where you said, you know, I'm going to build a truck from scratch, like, and it's going to run from like downtown San Francisco to like the, into the center of the port of LA. And I'm not going to cut anything out. And that would be really, really hard and probably harder than cars. Right. But the thing that's interesting about trucking is that it lends itself to this a little bit more modular approach where you can figure out a sub chunk of the problem um, that makes a lot of sense. And it can be done in a, in, in a uh, effective fashion. And I had to sort of pick the criteria that we used as we thought about this. Um, you want something that has a really big market. You want something that has a clear pressing need where you're not a, where you're solving a real burning problem. And you want something that has technical focus. So you can work on one particular technical problem instead of trying to do a little bit of everything. Um, and I think trucking fits that in spades, right? So trucking market is 730-ish billion dollars. Uh, you know, it's an absolutely gigantic market. The three biggest problems when we sat down and talked to trucking companies are one, that they can't hire enough drivers. Two, that they're always worried about safety. And three, that the environmental impact of these trucks is significant. And driverless can improve or resolve all three of those, right? Where we can have uh, better quality jobs for those local drivers who can ultimately move more freight, uh, which resolves that problem. We have the ability to improve safety because trucks don't get distracted or sleepy on long haul sections. Um, and we have the ability to drive more efficiently at better speeds and with less starting and stopping than a, than a person would. And so there's like a clear solution a giant market and then as i talked about at the top um there's an ability to sort of focus in on driving outside of city centers and solve one problem uh, and build a great product so i think that's that's why it was compelling to us um but it wasn't something that happened immediately it took us a while um to to ultimately figure figure all of that out yeah i imagine i mean you you sit down it's you know the business school one-on-one you look at the, the value chain right and you got to figure out where is your where are you going to carve out your slice and this is a super complex value chain with a lot of things that you guys theoretically could do and i mean even the question so you guys developed the software and how far you go in the manufacturing and partnerships and who you're working with like lot, lots of questions to be answered there so i have to imagine that that wasn't a linear path by any means yeah i think what's really interesting um is a lot of the ideas that uh, are now sort of that, that we developed in the early years are now sort of thought of as industry standard stuff like transfer points um, are was actually very controversial when we first started um, mm -hmm. and uh, I think over time people have have come around to it 
stuff like um, modular integration is still controversial. Like being asset light, not owning the trucks ourselves is still controversial. Um, but I think you'll see convergence over time on some of these ideas um, as, you know, those are a bit newer. Um, and I think you see um, people starting to realize the value of those. Um, and so it's definitely interesting seeing uh, how it develops. But we actually posted our seed deck a while back. Um, I thought it was super interesting because the core, although you're right, you have to refine questions of like, how deep do you go into to, uh, manufacturing? How deep do you go into to operations? And how do you support the right partners? Um, but at the top level, I think if you pitch the seed deck today, it basically is the business, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. So the sort of very high level insights um, have turned out to be very durable. So, so where on, on the manufacturing side, where do you guys draw the line? So is it, I mean, you got the truck behind you and this, this virtual background, you got your LIDAR sensors on some type of uh, it's held on some fixture. Like is it, you guys are manufacturing and providing that and then your, your end customer is doing the integration of that onto their vehicles or, or how, how does that work? Yeah. The way that we approach manufacturing is to try and make it modular um that's kind of how i think about it and so the, the two modules that you that are not uh are not existing in terms of stuff you need to add i need to add the perception system and you need to add the compute system um, and so we basically have a modular approach to each of those um and it's really interesting because this this modular approach is something that's a bit specific to trucking um so it you if you talk to people in the self-driving car space um, nobody does modular approach. Uh, everybody just tries to get integrated with a single OEM because that's really the only way to go to market in cars. Um, yeah. Trucks are pretty unique and different um, where trucks are already very, very modular. I call it the Lego brick design um, in the sense that, you know, just to give one example, um, we work very closely with a company called Cummins that builds diesel engines. And Cummins is interesting because uh, they're independent diesel engine manufacturers. So there are some diesel engines that you can only get in like one brand of truck. You can get a Cummins in any of the major brands of truck. And it's been, it, it's a little bit different configuration, obviously. It needs to be mounted slightly different. It needs slightly different firmware configurations to match each of those base vehicles. But truck platforms are designed to be uh, Lego brick reconfigurable enough that Cummins sells to fleets and fleets go to the manufacturer and say, I want Cummins engines in this truck. And then the manufacturer makes sure that that's possible. Um, and I think that's sort of the way that we think makes the most sense for driverless is not to redesign the whole truck, but instead to build uh, sort of that same sort of modular approach and then make sure that it's able to be integrated uh, onto the vehicle platform. And that it needs to look a little bit different for each platform, um, but that's a, a reasonable compromise to allow you to not have to design the whole truck and, and really focus on a couple of parts. How are you thinking about competition? So there's, I don't know, depending on how you count, some, something like 10 companies working on different aspects of automated commercial logistics, some last mile, some transfer station, some platooning to start, some door to door, different sizes from class two to class eight. Is this something that you guys are thinking about Hey, there's, there's, there's a big enough market. We all have uh, room to play here and we just do our own thing as well as possible and it's going to work out. Or is this something that you're actively thinking about a, we're approaching the same problem as someone else and we need to beat them out. Like, a, how, how do you guys think about this competitive space? Yeah, I think um, I, the first thing I would say is that 
as I mentioned, there's um, a lot of, of nuance to sort of exactly what slice you're trying to take out of the business. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, the majority of other approaches really aren't tackling the problem that we're tackling, right? Uh, like there, as you mentioned, there are people who do like yard trucks, for example, um, and or there are people who do platooning. And these are completely different products that don't really compete with what we do. Um, um, there are a handful of folks that do long haul class eight alongside, alongside Embark. Um, so there's probably, uh, there's, there's three public companies and then Google self-driving effort also, uh, is fairly well known. So there's sort of like four well-known ones that, that, uh, we hear about. Um, and among that group, um, so I think it's actually a pretty small, a pretty small group when you sort of narrow in on like, okay, what's the actual thing that's being delivered and you know, who, who offers a product that would be useful to the same people for the same thing. Um, and I think when you compare that to other subsectors of mobility, uh, what you realize is actually, um, in some sense, this is a very small cohort of companies relative to the size of the opportunity, right? Like electric vehicles do not do $730 billion of revenue. Um, but there is, you know, a, a dozen, maybe a couple dozen worldwide, like yeah. credible electric companies. Um, driverless cars actually will not do as much revenue. Uh, LIDAR will not do as much revenue in the next 10 years. Um, and those are all businesses where you probably have a dozen plus. And here you have a, a business that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars where there are four. Um, so, so among the four uh, self-driving truck efforts that that sort of focus on something similar and have a, a fairly mature product, uh, I think the focus is really on uh, two things. You ultimately need to get the technology in the hands of customers and you'd have a scalable business model that allows you to, to operate in a big chunk of the, uh, the market. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, our focus is really on those two things. And, and I think that we have a pretty unique approach, both on the technical and on the, the commercial side that allows us to be pretty scalable. Um, I think if we deliver on those things, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, like the business, the business will be massively successful if you deliver on those things. Um, and so it's it's a little bit more like each is trying to deliver their own chunk, and I think it's a big enough market that um, that that's what matters. Uh, at the same time, and now now I'm like going to say something a little bit more controversial. I would be surprised if all four made it, um, and that's not so much because of like competitive dynamics as it is because it's a hard problem, um, yeah. and you just you know the the physics of it is hard. The uh... I don't know. Maybe I was going to go somewhere else, but maybe just quickly on there. The what? What do you consider the hardest part of of the the technical problem it's, itself? Yeah, the hardest part of the technical problem. I'll, I'll say the hardest part in my mind is actually the uh, the go to market. So, yeah, that's where I was going to go next. <laughs> yeah, the hardest part is probably the go to market. Um, but if I, but if I had to to think about the technical problem, what's interesting about the technical problem is. Um, all the pieces to do it exist. Embark has uh, operational self-driving trucks today. I mean, so, so like a lot of this is proven. Um, but what's hard is you need to be able to handle all of the variety of things that happen in a reasonable way. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, we can narrow that in like by excluding city centers. But there's still a lot of things like we think about what's left for Embark to be deliver on things like 
um, being able to interact with inspectors, being able to interact with emergency vehicles, being able to pull over to the side of the road and deploy road triangles, um, which are like these, you know, these are like warning signs that are legally required. Um, all that kind of stuff needs to be done. And so even after you have a working self-driving truck, um, there's still a, a lot of uh, like a lot of things required just to get the truck to a point where it does something reasonable in all circumstances um, instead of just in, in, you know, the base case circumstance. And I think that's yeah. um, what's tricky. How, how are you guys thinking about the, the safety case and uh, assembling that and then putting that within the, I guess the, the overall release case for when this thing's ready to go? Yeah. The safety case ends up looking a lot like a plane, uh, which I think is interesting. So well, the one advantage that we have relative to aerospace is that because we're able to operate them on road with safety drivers, we can gather a lot more data than you can with a, a test plane, right? Like your plane kind of needs to be ready to go the first time you put it in the air. Uh, whereas you can take your driverless system and you can iterate much more effectively by putting it on the road and, and seeing how it performs and having a safety fallback. Um, so that's really useful. But other than that, it looks very similar. So you have better data, um, but you're doing a lot of the same work. What I mean you by that is- You also have a safe that, state that you can just pull over to the side of the road, right. which you it's very can't helpful, really do. Right? Relative, yeah. to, relative to the other challenges. Um, but then what, what you're doing is really, um, there's sort of standard uh, processes where uh, you're, decomposing the problem in sort of doing a waterfall analysis that breaks it into components and subcomponents with requirements. Then you're doing a hazard analysis that looks at what are the different ways that each of these modules and requirements could fail. Um, how do we manage that? And then you're doing quality reliability analysis, which tries to gather empirical data on the performance of each subsystem. And then you put all of that together, right? To build, here are the requirements, here's how they break down. Here's the performance relative to those requirements. And then here's the failure modes that we might expect with the frequencies and here's how those are managed. Um, I do think what's interesting though, is like there's, there was early on um, some folks who thought that it was just going to be purely empirical. Like you were just gonna drive until you showed that it was safe and that's not how it's going to work, um, right? You don't, you know, as I said, you don't fly a plane just like over and over and over again until you're like, yeah, but it's safe now, right? It's safe when you put it in the air. Um, and I think driverless systems have to have to be approached the same way. Yeah, you're not going to see every single case that you've ever could in <laughs> enough times and enough iterations to to get meaningful data, anyways. And it's not going to be cost effective either to just drive infinitely, right? Right. And I think well, the other thing is, uh, the other thing that's interesting is with uh, with a safety driver in the vehicle, you will always have some baseline level of disagreement between what the person thinks the system should do and what the system does. Mm -hmm. And so it's not possible to just run the truck and never ever have someone touch the wheel. Um, what you have to do is know that in those cases of disagreement, it was going to do something reasonable. Um, and so that it adds, adds just another layer to it, right? Of um, you don't want to send the truck into dangerous situations as the way of validating that it's safe. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to add a lot of like we do track testing, we do simulation testing, um, right? You, you're not you're not proving that it's safe by endangering a bunch of people. Um, you're proving that it's safe by validating each of the components meets the requirements and understanding what the failure modes look like if that's not the case. Yeah, and uh, functional safety sounded for when I was first. So at my, my previous role at FEV, we did a ton of functional safety work, and it sounds like the the most dry 
topic that I would never want to touch. So like I avoided it for a few years. And then after I dug in and did some ISO 26262 training and actually understood like super interesting stuff. If you, if you have an engineer, um, if you have an engineering, super analytical mind, it's a, yeah, difficult problem, but also very interesting. Yeah. Uh, the maybe any, anything else in the go to market that you would speak to that uh, stands out as something that you guys are putting a lot of focus on or that you see as a, a big challenge? I think the other big challenge is just re recognizing that it takes people time to ramp up um, on on using the product. Hmm. And so a, a lot of people, uh, even some of our competitors, sort of think, talk about, okay, well, we're just going to like build the technology and then one day we'll hand it over to carriers and they'll just use it. And the reality is with any new technology, there's a period of getting comfortable with it, training staff on it, getting experience for it. Um, and so we do, we have something called the partner development program where we actually work with some of the biggest carriers in the country and uh, where we have them gaining experience with how these systems work and how they need to operate them. Um, and I think that that is something that everyone will have to do between the point that they say, okay, uh, we're ready to start letting you see the trucks and put your hands on them to the point where people are willing and able to put thousands of them into service. And that's something that is maybe underestimated. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there are many ways in which this could be botched, right? Of people who just don't understand it, who are rolling out tech trucks and either get a safety incident or you just, you don't, you don't see the efficiency improvement or wh yeah, even whatever. Just like one really simple like toy example. Um, so we work with uh, a number of shippers who, who uh, do what's called weigh out. So the, the trailer plus the truck will weigh 80,000 pounds, which is the legal limit. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll weigh the combined vehicle before it leaves the yard. Uh, and that works great. But the driverless truck might weigh a different amount than the truck that does the local drive. And so you need to make sure that when you're doing the math, you're checking not just the day cab, which is doing the local drive, but the long haul truck, which carries more gas, carries a bunch more compute, is heavier, that it's going to pick it up from the transfer point, that the math will all work out there. Otherwise, you'll be overweight, and then your driverless truck will end up needing to get pulled over. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's very simple. Like, once you understand, that's a pretty obvious fact, but it requires the process to be changed all the way through how the shipper thinks about how do, how do I figure out how much weight is allowed to go in this trailer? Um, yeah. That's the sort of thing that, you know, takes a few months to fix when you realize it's a problem. You want to know that up front versus, uh, you know, handing over the first truck and then having to to figure out this stuff on the fly. And, and I think, I mean, it's, it's human nature, right? The, the operators, as you get down, who are going to be executing this stuff, you, you only get so many of those little mix-ups early on before they start making opinions or forming opinions about the technology. And uh, yeah, that... that having a smooth introduction with a bunch of education and proactively identifying and overcoming those, uh, those roadblocks seems like it's going to be super important. I mean, this is what you said, right? There's, uh, everyone thinks that like the getting the, the tech built is hard, but actually getting it out into the market is, is way harder, right? Getting it to a point where it's actually usable. And that includes a lot of, um, like training and, and partnership with the people who are going to use it. And if we can take that, maybe, uh, a slightly different direction, but similar to thought process. So the, also the part of the challenge too is, so now you've come, you started very a group a company addressing an interesting problem. You're doing it in a 
way the team's successful. You're making good progress. And now Alex is leading a team of a couple hundred people. And now you need to, in addition to all this, become a, or be and continue to be a, a very successful CEO who's leading this organization. How is, how is that progress? process look for you and is there anything that stands up stands out for you as you've you've taken on this responsibility and now have this much more uh, inertia behind you with tackling this problem i think uh it's definitely been interesting obviously every every year is different experience leading the company and so you really have to sort of be able to to learn and adapt to each of those new experiences i think um what i found is that uh if if you find people who have strong fundamentals all the way across the company, and I think of startup fundamentals as like, of course you want people who understand uh, the specific materials um, that like their specific area of, of expertise, but really it's the ability to uh, think in a structured way, to communicate clearly, to work as a team um, and to learn. Uh, that's really that's really where it gets interesting, right? Is that it change the the job changes for everyone every year, um, yep. and you just need to have the humility to constantly be going out and finding the experts in the new thing that you need to be doing and learning from them. Um, and that's true for me, and it's also true for people across the team. And so, um, you know, we bring certain expertise. Obviously, robotics is is my expertise, but leading a you know three hundred plus person team is not something that I'd done before. Um, and so, uh, I've had to go and find people to learn from, and we. Uh, had Sequoia Capital, who's um, probably the best uh, investor in the Valley over the last 50 years, um, invest in the company way back when we were small in 2018. Um, and that's been hugely valuable uh, to be able to to learn from the same people that, you know, have seen this cycle over and over again, that back Google and YouTube and Apple and Cisco and, uh, yeah. you know, to a couple of no-name companies. So they, they sort of seen how this stuff works. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's somewhat a self-interested question and that i mean so not tackling nearly as 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 big of a problem but now so with with edison now it's a single digit startup that I, i'm working on helping to lead and I, I was previously at a i don't know in a director role at a 65 person or 6500 person company which is very, very different dynamic so it's, it's interesting to hear how you've tackled it are there any uh any specific kind of resources whether it's something writ written like a book or anything else that you found particularly valuable during that uh that journey um, I do, so I would recommend uh, a book called The Great CEO Within by a guy named Matt Mokri. Um, really excellent, uh, just like tactical book. Um, you know, there's a lot of nonfiction that gets very esoteric and is like very tactical. Like here's, here's how to run your life to be more efficient and to manage a team well, uh, which I think is really good. And then the other thing I would recommend is whenever you're jumping into a thing that you haven't done before, um, just call people and get advice. Uh, especially as startup founders like that, it, like I've always been surprised at how willing people are to just spend some time and share what they know. And so whenever I'm trying to do something new, I'll try and call three to five people who are like real experts um, and just pick their brain for half an hour. It's amazing yeah. how much you can learn um, and how much people are willing to, you know, talk to, to young people who are um, looking to get advice on, on their area of expertise. People turns out like to like to share that. Yeah. And, and so I think it sounds like if you're listening to this and you, you run a, a startup and you're able to get Alex's phone number, give him a call. <laughs> yeah. But cool. So Alex has been a lot, a lot of fun. I think, uh, yeah, enjoyed the conversation. Enjoyed hearing what you guys are working on. Is there anything, anything else you were hoping to cover here or anything that we, we've missed? 
I think, uh, I think we've done a pretty good job on, on a lot of this stuff. I think maybe one last idea that I would share, um, that I think is really unique and interesting is I think one of the things that makes Embark really exciting is that, um, we're taking a fairly different tack to getting this technology into commercialization. Um, and I call it sort of the iPod approach versus the iPhone approach. Um, where if you look at technologies that exist today, it's very common for you to look at it and be like, oh, this, this technology is super complicated. It does everything and assume that that's how technologies get developed. But if you spend the time and you look at how technologies actually got developed, it's almost always the case that they started off by finding a very specific, like very well-defined subset of the problem and doing a great job of that achieving commercial scale in that area, and then using all the capabilities that were developed to do that to get better, right? And the, the quintessential example of that, I think, is Apple with the iPod, right? The iPod is a great music player, and that's it. And then eventually, they, they were able to give it you know, more capabilities. They figured out, how do we do a good touch screen, right? How do we do a good app store? Um, and then it became the iPhone, as you know it today, over time. How do we give it a good camera? But it didn't start there. Uh, and so I think uh, what Embark is trying to do is the same thing, right? Is saying self-driving is this incredibly interesting problem. Even robotics is this incredibly interesting problem that I'm excited to work on fun robotics projects for the rest of my career. Um, but you have to start somewhere. Uh, and the the way to start somewhere is really to find that one thing that the, the system can be really, really good at today um, and get that into hands of people whose lives it can actually improve. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess you've sparked two, two quick follow-up questions. So one, do you have in your own mind the definition of, so it sounds like, I don't know if it's flipping a switch, but like you're expanding the focus at a certain point once you demonstrate commercial success from what I got out of what you just said. Do you have, a, what, what does that look like? Is it once you've crossed the break-even point and you're profitable or, or is it not quite that distinct that you're going to try to expand beyond the current scope? Yeah. Well, what I'll say is that, um, on the one hand, you probably, you, you like correctly intuited that we're, we're very pragmatic and we see this technology as potentially very valuable, both in lots of different geographies and in lots of different applications. However, I think it's really important that we be super focused. So we don't talk about or plan about like what, what other places you could put the tech. Um, we really focus on where the first couple of places. And so the first thing we're doing is 2024, focusing on doing it in sunny areas in the US. And then 2026, expanding that to the rest of the country. So that's sort of the first switch flip. Um, but uh, I think you'll find this is maybe a, a stylistic thing, but stylistically, I think it makes sense to focus on the thing where most of our resources should be going. And um, certainly when I talk to the team, you know, I talk about let's do the Sun Belt, let's do a great job of that. And once that's done and the technology is working in commercial, then you know, we take the next step we do the rest of the country and when that's working commercial we can talk about what the right step is after that yeah and then so this next question is not going to go completely in the the face of the, <laughs> that line i think but there was a thread from the beginning that you said you thought self-driving cars was just the the first kind of uncaging of robotics and that you think this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg anything super high level you could say about where else you see exciting applications for this stuff so. uh, yeah absolutely um i'll pick two uh one Folding laundry blows my mind that like there's a lot of people working on other kinds of robotics and like nobody bothered to do laundry folding. Uh, so somebody <laughs> should get on that. 
Uh, and then two would be house construction. Um, I think where construction is this huge, huge, huge expense. Um, and I think there are elements of that, that once you have robots that can do the basics, like move around and do perception and planning and, and good actuation. Um, I think there's some really interesting stuff that you could do in construction. Yeah. Maybe in a few years we'll around two and we'll talk about your, uh, construction company then. Cool. Well, Alex, thanks again. I think a uh, really fun discussion and best of luck to you guys. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Yep. Thanks. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alex Rodriguez. So a few, a few things stood out to me. Um, I'll, I'll talk to Alex here. So the first was actually the, the competition aspect. So in my mind, I think of, you know, there's, there's a lot, lot of companies. I mean, there's several that have appeared on this podcast already. There's a lot more out there who haven't talked to it, but at least a dozen or close to that who are working on automation, automating different aspects of commercial logistics, which sounds like a lot. But the way Alex phrases it, which on, on the surface makes sense, maybe it isn't. Maybe this this is a huge market, and they're all addressing relatively different aspects. He mentioned really, really there's four companies addressing this billion-dollar market of automating long haul trucking. Yeah, maybe maybe not as crowded as it might seem from the outside and assuming Embark and others are able to solve the technical problem and the logistics problem of actually implementing this technology, maybe there's space for several or all of them to uh, to come out with uh, successful profitable businesses on the on the back end. So, that was interesting to me. The other aspect that was interesting was talking to talking to Alex about kind of the, the other future for, for robotics. So we just, we just touched on this at the end and uh, you know, he mentioned laundry folding, but interesting framing to think about automated on-road driving as kind of this, this stepping stone of robotics moving more into our lives. And again, we just scratched the surface. We definitely got my head spinning though of, you know, this, these robotics problems of automating certain repetitive functions that a robotic computer might be able to do better than a human uh, or as good of a, as a human in the real world really uh i don't know i think it's exciting to think about what that might look like and how this might scale if we're as collectively successful in automating this this very challenging problem of on-road driving and the last thing i would, I would just um, focus on is and hey, this is kind of ties together but like this uh in all 11 different platforms you mentioned that automated and I'm learning kind of more and more as we talk to different people in the space how yes every situation has its own boundary conditions and every use case has to be handled slightly differently but at its core these robotics problems are have the same the same building blocks the same challenges that need to be addressed just the, the method and the specific you know validation and uh, boundary again boundary conditions that you have to deal with are um, are, are different, but I, I think it's it's interesting to continue to think about how interrelated the, the the various automation activities are, and how if we are successful here automating long haul trucking, how that might uh, pr- might propagate into other areas. I'm still not uh, su- super excited about automating the private use vehicle quite yet. I think that's um, even a more challenging, significantly more challenging problem. But yeah, I mean, there's probably other applications out there, and we talk about off road applications and such. So. Leave it there for now. Please, uh, Aries, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'll have uh, 
and another another discussion another episode thank you for listening to the future of mobility podcast brought to you by edison manufacturing and engineering if you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my linkedin page brandon bartnick Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of ten to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.